sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation. Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Well, Ernest Hemingway is a literary legend, but unlike many literary legends, he gained that status while he was still alive. In fact, many already had pegged him as one of the world's next great writers right at the very beginning of his career when he introduced his first novel, The Sun Also Rises. My guest today has published a detailed account of how Hemingway created his first novel and in the process created the now iconic Hemingway persona, a virile, adventurous, laconic wordsmith. Her name is Leslie Bloom, and her book is Everybody Behaves Badly, the true story behind Hemingway's masterpiece, The Sun Also Rises. Today on the show, Leslie and I discuss Hemingway's drive to revolutionize literature, the, authentic- the authenticity of his manly persona, and the real-life party in Spain that inspired his classic debut novel. After you're done listening to the show, make sure to check out the show notes at aom.is slash bloom. That's B-L-U-M-E. Leslie Bloom, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. Uh, So your latest book is uh, Everybody Behaves Badly, the true story behind Hemingway's masterpiece, The Sun Also Rises. Uh, You're a journalist for Vanity Fair. I'm curious what piqued your interest in finding the backstory about Hemingway's first book, uh, The Sun Also Rises. Well, I had um, actually been researching another story, and I came across a picture of Hemingway sitting around a cafe table in Pamplona in 1925 with a really like, just wonderfully naughty-looking group of people. And uh, one person in the picture besides Hemingway intrigued me in particular, and it was this sort of lithe, glamorous, coquettish woman sitting next to him, and I didn't know who she was, and I wanted to know more. Um, and I, uh, so I looked into it, and it turned out her name was Lady Duff Twiston, and she was the real-life inspiration behind Hemingway's character, <clears throat> Lady Brett Ashley, um, who, for me, you know, growing up and reading that book was, was you know, the epitome of glamour, uh, you know, dissipated glamour and anguish, of course, but still, like, just totally enthralling. And I hadn't realized that um, The Sun Also Rises was largely drawn from, from real life. And there's been a lot of scholarship on, you know, on that period, but nobody has ever really written the standalone, a really compelling, stylish standalone story detailing the real-life events that inspired the book and how it came about and how it launched Hemingway as Hemingway. So originally, it started out as an idea for a Vanity Fair article, and then um, I quickly realized that it was it was way too substantial a topic 
um, to cover in, you know, 5,000 words. And so uh, I turned it into a book and, and I wrote the book that I had been looking for and hadn't been written before. That's fantastic. So uh, the story is not only about the creation of The Sun Also Rises, but it's also about the creation of Hemingway himself. Um, yeah. you know, he gained the status, he's gained the status of literary legend, but unlike a lot of other literary giants, he was able to do that while he was still living. Um, how was he able to do that? And did he, did he have that? Like, that was like a goal he probably had written down somewhere in like a commonplace book. Like I want to be the greatest novelist ever. Well, actually, the person who said that was Fitzgerald. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> These guys were, pre- yeah, you know, they, they were pretty bald about their, their ambitions. And, you know, I, I mean, I use... Or, or, or sort of reference a lot of language in my book, you know, that Hemingway never would have used in, in his day, or nobody would have in terms of, you know, launching a Hemingway brand along with, um, you know, along with uh, launching, you know, his, the book itself, The Sun Also Rises. But in, in a way, that's really what he was doing at this time. And I don't think Hemingway ever really had in his mind, you know, that he wanted to become a lifestyle icon, but did he want to become, you know, the foremost writer of his generation with a revolutionary new style? Yes, absolutely. Um, and he just, but he, as an author, just proved incredibly fascinating to to his his to his readers, and um, the the PR and the marketing teams who who rolled out the, the Sun Also Rises in 1926, you know, realized that Hemingway was a, a, a huge asset, um, you know, as a as a persona behind the writing, and they they um, you know uh, put out a lot of stories about him also. So, for instance, in some of the advertising for the book, The Sun Also Rises, there wasn't a picture of the book cover. It was a picture of Hemingway, uh, you know, and he, he was very different from, you know, the idea that most people then had, you know, about, in, about what a writer should be. I mean, writers were bespectacled. They were dusty. They were Proustian. I mean, here's Hemingway. He comes from the outdoors. He's, you know, fascinated with bullfighting. He's a boxer, um, you know, so he was, he was, you know, brainy but brawny. And it, was, it just proved then to be a fascinating um, persona and, you know, remains to this day a fascinating and very lucrative persona. Yeah. And um, I, what I thought was curious too was that even before he published his novel, it took him a long time. You talk about how writing his first novel like took a couple of years, but somehow Hemingway was able to get some respect in the sort of that avant-garde literary circle he was hanging out with in Paris and then even some with the publishers. Like, How was he able to do that without even producing a novel? Yeah, well, I mean, he's not even—he's not just getting respect. I mean, he's getting insane amounts of like highly devoted support from some of the most established figures in the avant-garde movement in Paris. And you know, he—well, he—he—he had—he was a renowned journalist at the time, and you know, he was in short stories and vignettes and that sort of thing, really, really showing off what he wanted to do stylistically. So you could you could see what he was up to and a lot of people were just you know wishing his first novel into place especially publishers because people knew you know short stories they were you know a, a decent business but you know the holy the holy grail was still you know the highly lucrative novel and people couldn't wait for him to write one um and he he did have a couple of false starts and you know one one of his his starter novel was lost in a careless accident by the hands of his wife um he started to well he thought of one and then never really pursued it. And then another one didn't really make it past, you know, the 30th page or whatever. Um, so everybody is just sitting there tapping their fingers and waiting, you know, for him to, to put this, this wonderful and beguiling style into something that, you know, a mass readership would actually read. Um, you know, and I also, you know, I talked, I talked to a lot of people about, you know, why he would, you know, a lot of people were trying to make breakthroughs stylistically at that time. Why did Hemingway get so much attention? And um, one person who knew him well said, look, you know, it was, 
it wasn't just the writing itself. They took him in combination with the writing. So again, the persona proved um, compelling to um, to to publishers and editors as well. It was almost like you know he he never would have used this phrase, or they never would have. But a modern phrase would be that you know they I think they detected that he had a platform and he had a particular charisma that would really help push out the work. And for our listeners who aren't familiar, I mean, what did Hemingway do? Like, well, how did he change literature? And who were some of the folks who were influencing his style? Well, I mean, Hemingway was not um, generous when it came to admitting influences on his style, though sometimes he would say, you know, the Bible, or sometimes, you know, he would admit that, um, you know, his journalistic background had helped him, uh, you know, it really shape the style. Um, what he was doing after you know, after World War One, um, there was a, a, a decent-sized school of writers who were especially concentrated in Paris at the time, American writers, um, who were trying to simplify the English language. I mean, Wartonian and Jamesian English was very long-winded, long sentences, lavish adjectives. Um, I mean, this is certainly not what what they felt looked like, you know, what modern language looked like. And so Hemingway arrives in Paris in 1921, and he already knows that he wants, you know, to simplify everything. And there are other people on the scene already who are trying to do what he's doing, and they're really studying language. Like Gertrude Stein had been doing it since, you know, um, before World War One. Ezra Pound, who the poet, um, and they really they take they take Hemingway under their their respective wings, and they each teach him very important things about their own writing. You know, with Gertrude Stein, it's about, you know, creating a certain rhythm. With, with uh, Ezra Pound, it's about um, musicality for the most part, um, you know, creating uh, imagery in one's work without using adjectives or being showy. Um, but the thing is, is these guys, they're, they're not selling a lot of their works. Everybody knows who they are, but they're not commercially successful writers. I mean, Gertrude Stein reportedly sold 73 copies of one of her books in the first 18 months. I mean, that's, that's not, like, not even friends and family, you know. So, but Hemingway, on the other hand, he sees what they're doing with their style, and he knows that he can make it commercially viable as well as, you know, revolutionary in the, in the critical sense. He, he, you know, famously told one of his American publishers, an early publisher, he said, look, there's nothing in my writing that somebody who doesn't have a high school education can't relate to. So he gets to everyone, but he said that, you know, highbrow critics are going to see what he's doing in terms of really simplifying and the repetition, that sort of thing. So they're going to see the artistry in it. And then he says, you know, for, for people who are not responding to either of those things, he said, quote, there's always, you know, in my book, The Sun Also Rises, there's a lot of dope about high society in it. And that's always interesting, end quote. So he's, He's really, he's, he's alighted upon a formula that there's something for everybody. And it, for, for that to actually work, I mean, you know what they say, they, they, they say, you know, if you try to prove everybody, you'll, pre, you'll please nobody. But he was the exception to the rule. He pleased everyone. So let's talk about uh, the trip to Spain, the fateful trip to Spain that inspired The Sun Also Rises. Um, who was there and what roles did they eventually play in the novel? So Hemingway um, had been going to Spain to the Bullfighting Festival in Pamplona, which happens every July. Um, he'd been going for a couple of years before he took a, a trip in 1925 with um, a handful of his of his comrades from from expatriate Paris, including Lady Duff Twisden, who was a um, a British uh, uh, sort of a loche British aristocrat who was in Paris waiting out a divorce. Um, Donald Ogden Stewart, who was a famous humor writer and part of the Algonquin Round Circle from New York. Uh, 
later Oscar nominated for, for uh, the Philadelphia story. Um, Pat Guthrie, who was Lady Duff Twiston's lover and sort of a very drunken Scottish remittance man, and Harold Loeb, who was um, an heir to two of the most prominent Jewish fortunes in New York City, and Hemingway's wife, Hadley. Hadley ends up being the only one who doesn't make it into The Sun Also Rises as a character. All of these other characters, um, you know, all of these other people are immediately translated um, under, in, you know, in many cases, under their own names in Hemingway's first draft. And what he does is he um, takes the extreme naughtinesses that went down um, in Pamplona, and he, he basically literally translates um, the, the goings-on of that festival, which was everything from you know, sexual rivalry to near fistfights you know, to the bullfighting gore. Um, and, and he puts it on paper, and that, and that is the backbone of his story for The Sun Also Rises, and these people become immortalized um, <clears throat> by his pen. Wedding season is coming up, and if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. All right, so if you're like me, you've probably signed up for a whole bunch of stuff that has a recurring monthly fee. Subscriptions to newsletters, subscriptions to services that you use online, uh, could be a streaming service, something like that. You sign up for it and then you forget about it. And then every month you're getting charged and charged and charged and they just all add up and you have a hard time trying to figure out where did I sign up for this? I don't know where this is coming from. Well, let me tell you, there's an app that can help you with that. It's called Rocket Money. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. I had a chance to use Rocket Money and it works. You connect your account to it and then it goes through your accounts and helps you find those recurring subscription fees that maybe you forgot about and then you can cancel them and save yourself a bit of money each month. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com manliness. That's rocketmoney.com slash manliness, rocketmoney.com slash manliness. Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ziprecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. 
ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. So recently, I went through the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. A lot of useful information in there. Talked about the value of knowing a negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM. Masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. Yeah, and that's one of the things that uh, the critics, some of the critics levied against Hemingway, that he really wasn't writing fiction. He was just being a news reporter. Well, I think, you know, it was, it was less critics than, you know, people who had actually been used as characters. I mean, Donald Ogden Stewart gets a copy of the book, and by this time he's in Hollywood when the novel actually gets released. And he says, I, I can't believe that he's peddling this as fiction. I mean, this is nothing. He says, quote, this is nothing but a report on what happened. Um, I mean, albeit by that point, everybody was under a pseudonym. Um, but, I mean, it was really well known in, you know, in the Paris colony and in New York and definitely in, you know, editor circles that this was a Romana Clay. Um, so there were a few critics who, you know, really knew Hemingway and they knew that he was a really good reporter. And, you know, they, they you know, slyly pointed out that uh, that this this had been drawn, you know, very literally from real life. And a few of them did take issue with that in terms of, you know, could it be considered a work of high artistry? Um, but for the most part, critics were really not, they didn't really care because um, it was all about the style in which it had been rendered. And they knew that they were seeing something new. They knew they were seeing something revolutionary and they were seeing something masterful. And so that's what they looked at. And can you talk a little bit about uh, Hemingway's relationship with F. Scott Fitzgerald and the role he played in getting this novel published? Well, Fitzgerald is, is a huge figure in this narrative, and, and when Hemingway meets Fitzgerald, well, when Hemingway is first trying to break through, Fitzgerald is already a superstar, um, and novelists in, you know, back in these days were successful novelists were you know, huge cultural icons, um, and Fitzgerald had made his breakthrough in uh, 1920 with Tender as the Night and just went from strength to strength after that. When Hemingway meets him, he's just, he's, uh, you know, riding on the, the strength of Gatsby, which is, you know, Fitzgerald has had films made out of his books, and Hemingway is just a young upstart, and he's, he's told people that he doesn't really love Fitzgerald's style, but Fitzgerald takes an interest in him, and, you know, when a, when a huge, iconic writer who has, you know, the, the best connections on the planet takes an interest in you, whether you like their writing or not, you, you, you usually say yes to their patronage. So Fitzgerald first, um, you know, told his own editor, Maxwell Perkins, uh, uh, who was you know, at a very prestigious publishing house, Scribner's, in, in New York, about Hemingway, and then later helped Hemingway maneuver into the publishing house. Then they're both under the same editor, and when Hemingway gives 
Perkins, the, the manuscript for The Sun Also Rises, Max Perkins barely touches it. I mean, there's, it's a very light editing, but Fitzgerald, on the other hand, shrewdly goes to town on the manuscript and he gives Hemingway advice. You know, you have to cut this, you have to do this, this seems really juvenile. You know, and he sees that the book has potential to be a huge book, a, a classic book, but he is helping Hemingway take all the things out of it that keep it in sort of that JV class. And Hemingway takes, takes his advice and makes a lot of these changes. Um, he doesn't credit Fitzgerald with, with the changes. And Fitzgerald kind of, you know, elegantly keeps quiet on it too um, until years later. Um, but so Fitzgerald really helped Hemingway translate um, The Sun Also Rises from just a bitchy Romana Clay into a powerful work of, of literature. Yeah, I mean, one of the, the kind of the common theme I saw with Hemingway and his relationship with others, it seemed like he was very utilitarian with people. Like he just they kind of used them and then didn't really give a lot back. Well, he's, he must have given something back. Um, and, and that was you know, difficult as a biographer to figure out, you know, what would cause, what would ignite such devotion in people when Hemingway was really quite early started to get a reputation for, for, for um, biting the hand. Um, I, I, still, I, I still don't think that I have ever heard it adequately described, you know, what was at the root of Hemingway's particular charisma, but, you know, people loved him. I mean, they really loved him, and Fitzgerald loved him until he died, even though, um, you know, Hemingway um, made, you know, little jabs at him in the press, and, you know, there were, you know, a lot of, there were tensions between them, but he, Fitzgerald had a generosity of spirit when it came to Hemingway, and he really loved what Hemingway had done for writing, and he even felt Hemingway, he felt himself Hemingway's inferior. Um, but other, other, you know, mentors whom Hemingway had been less generous with, you know, for such as Gertrude Stein or Sherwood Anderson, or these are, these are all people who helped Hemingway significantly in his early years and either were, were satirized by Hemingway or, um, just treated treated quite badly. I mean, those those friendships never recovered, um, and 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 you can you can understand why. And I I don't. I mean, part of me just thinks that it was just how Hemingway was wired, um, and then part of me thinks that very few people can forgive their patrons. I guess in a way, I think that there's always a, maybe a certain there's there's gratitude, but there's also kind of a resentment because you feel beholden to somebody who has helped you. Um, and in many ways, these people were competitors also. I mean, Gertrude Stein had been trying to do a version of what Hemingway accomplished in a very short time, and she'd been trying for decades to do it. So there were complicated relationships, to say the least, and I think Hemingway doesn't necessarily act admirably in, in all of them, but he's, he's treated you know, magnanimously by, by the people who he did um, show up. Right. And it, as I was reading the book, this, I feel like authenticity like it was an important ideal for Hemingway and these other lost generation artists. You know, Hemingway was always calling out people for being phonies, you know. Um, but did Hemingway walk the walk when it came to authenticity or was, or did he sort of kind of backslide or, I mean, he wasn't, yeah. Was he, was he actually walking the walk? I mean, I, I think it's a complicated question. I think that he did have, you know, smaller hypocrisies, uh, well, no, I think, I think that he did have, you know, hypocrisies across the board, but I think Hemingway, you know, on the whole, in terms of the Hemingway persona, for instance, of, you know, manliness, outdoorsiness. I mean, I don't think that was affected. I think it just genuinely was who he was. And, you know, obviously I had to go, you know, look further back at his, his early influences. I mean, this is somebody who really was raised, you know, outdoors. Um, you know, somebody who would sleep, you know, for days, you know, in a tent or, you know, he was always doing physical work. I mean, he really was a very physical, manly, brawny person. And like, um, you know, many men of his generation, I mean, 
He had signed up to be a witness to World War I. He, he had defective eyesight, so he couldn't participate as a soldier. But he went and he, he drove ambulances, which is what, you know, a, a few people did when they, when they couldn't actually, you know, get drafted. Um, so I think that he, 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 in that respect, I mean, his, his persona was completely authentic. I think that, you know, where there are certain hypocrisies, you know, for instance, like he, when he first gets to Paris, he is writing up the cafe scene and the cafes were like the nerve centers, the expat cafes were nerve centers for, for the colony there. And of course there were, there was a lot of posturing and a lot of pretension there. And he calls it like he sees it. And he, um, he has, you know, not charitable words about the people who, who uh, frequent these places, but at the same time, he too frequents these places, um, you know, so that there's that. And then I think, you know, also, you know, much is made, um, you know, over, you know, the romanticness of his first relationship with his wife, you know, or his relationship with his first wife, Hadley, who was supporting the couple um, with a modest trust fund that she had inherited. Um, and, he, you know, made quite a big deal later in life about, you know, the simple pleasures of that time. Yes, it had been a really difficult time and especially hard on Hadley because they were really poor. He wasn't making money from his, his writing yet. Um, and everybody was, you know, they were making significant sacrifices. But then, you know, he in turn marries an heiress who, you know, is a Vogue editor. You know, so he, he does embrace some of the things that he heavily criticizes. But um, I would say, I mean, how few people are entirely without hypocrisy. I mean, I think that on the whole, I found him to be quite an authentic figure. So, you know, last question, Leslie, you know, Hemingway is a a lightning rod of a figure. Either you love him or you find him utterly repugnant. Um, After researching and writing about the genesis of Hemingway's first novel and his career and his persona, how do you feel about Hemingway? I mean, I, I actually, I mean, there are things that bother me about him. Obviously, I think that if I had known him in person, I would have been really scared of him because um, he was just so, such a huge presence um, and, and a volatile presence. And I think that people who are, you know, very patently charismatic are, are kind of scary to me. But, you know, I miss spending time in his world and I miss certain things about him. And I think that a lot of people when I was writing the book assumed that I was going to be writing this from sort of like a proto-feminist type where I would be, it would be like a takedown of Hemingway. And, and actually, I mean, there are a lot of things about him that, that really inspired me. I'm a journalist, like he was a journalist and um, you know, his appetite for life and his um, refusal uh, to be self-sacrificial. I mean, these are all things, they're values that are not really offered up to women or, or expected women are not really expected to embrace them. And I really do. And, and I, I loved his example in certain respects, you know, and at the end of the day, I mean, there, there was a lot of bad behavior as my title indicates. Um, and, but Hemingway was, he, it's not like he was like, you know, working for, for the forces of evil, for God's sake, he's not, you know, doing subprime mortgages or whatever. I mean, he's trying to reinvent literature. Um, and he is showing very candid and beautiful, um, beautiful studies of human nature. And I mean, I just, I, I love that that's what he devoted his life to. I mean, there's a, you know, I'm sure that there's a lot, you know, about him that repels other people, but I'm, I'm really not among them. I really, now, now that the writing of this is done, I, I miss, I miss being in his presence. Well, Leslie, this has been a great conversation. Where, where can people go to learn more about your book? 
Um, you can go to my website, which is Leslie, L-E-S-L-E-Y, M as in Mary, M as in Mary, Bloom, B-L-U-M-E dot com, or you can just go to Amazon and look up my book, Everybody Behaves Badly. All right, Leslie Bloom, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. My guest today was Leslie Bloom. She's the author of the book, Everybody Behaves Badly. It's available on Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. Also check out our website, lesliebloom.com, uh, to follow her other works. And also make sure to check out the show notes at aom.is slash bloom. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And if you enjoy the show, I'd appreciate it if you give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. Help spread the word about the show. As always, I appreciate your continued support, and until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly.